0: Whenever things go sideways, I just talk to my customers and they have great things to say and that just brings you right back up. I mean, you know, with I think 20,000 or so customers now, like most of them have extremely good and extremely happy things to say about the product. And to me, that's, you know, a very clarifying North Star.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into GRIP. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. You know, I got to tell you, I was... I don't know if skeptical was the right word, but I wasn't sure about the come in, see the office. And I remember driving home after getting a tour and being like, there was a reason that they did this. I called one of my buddies who was at a investment firm that led one of your rounds. And I was explaining the feeling that I had when I walked into the office, and this was in air quotes like a, a dead day.
0: Uh huh, it was, and it was a Friday It, was a Friday, yeah, it was a Friday before report president's report weekend. Little... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, so and pe-
1: people were skiing. And I was relaying the feeling that I had, which was like this electricity, it was palpable. You could feel, yeah. it was like buzzing. And he was like, dude, that is exactly the feeling that we had when we walked into their office. And he was like, they insisted that we come to their office. So anyway, I wasn't sure and now I get it. I imagine that most people that come into the office, I imagine it's very intentionally designed for that feeling that I had when I left the Verkata office.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it it very much is and has been designed that way, you know, sort of from the beginning. I mean, I think in the early days of this company, you have less funding. So you just put everyone close together, but we learned to like the energy and the, the sort of hum and buzz that you get. And so we kept building it that way. And I think it's pretty good. And it's definitely an asset, you know, when it comes to recruiting, when people come in, they feel the energy, they feel excited. And, you know, I think people leave thinking like, oh yeah, these guys are getting something done, uh, which is good, right? That's exactly the kind of feeling you want to have when you visit an office.
1: I relayed this to you when we were talking last time, but we we swung by the cafeteria. And again, this feeling that I had, it reminded me of the good old days of San Francisco in the Bay Area Yep, when my girlfriend at the time worked at LinkedIn and I would go visit her and they would have the cafeteria and everyone would be in the office. And you don't really realize the feeling that you miss yep. until
0: you feel this feeling again. Would yep. you agree with that? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I think uh, what I realize is, is you just, it's like a second set of friends, right? Like you come into work and it energizes you to see the people that hopefully you work with, you respect, you like hanging out with. And, you know, I think that's just part of life. I think it's really good if you can come to your professional life and you look forward to that, right? And some of that is... Well, because you feel productive, you get something really good done. Maybe, uh, you know, you advanced uh, the company's mission or, or whatever it is that you're doing. But a big aspect of it is, you know, you just have to like the people you work with and, mm-hmm. and, and that gives you a lot of energy. But was that proclaimed from the start? I don't think it's quote unquote proclaimed from the start. But I you
1: saw the value accrue over time of being for sure in, in person with people. For
0: sure. I mean, I think, you know, the way I would describe it is when the company starts by nature of it, as a founder, like no one wants to join you, you don't have money, you can't pay salaries. So, you know, the initial set of people who work with you are, are either friends or people you've yeah. you know, really convinced to join this crazy mission. And then they very quickly become your friends. So I think, you know, in the very early days of the company, you sort of naturally have that feeling, that sort of energy. I think, you know, the, the question becomes like, once you cross the 100, 200, 500 employee threshold, how do you maintain that? And I think, you know, it's roughly, Dan, probably roughly around 200 employees where we started being quite intentional with a lot of things we do in the office to keep that energy high.
1: I was at a friend's house over the weekend. They live in the Berkeley Hills Uh and both of them work remote. They have a little baby at home and they were talking about how nice it is to be at home. And, you know, I kind of went on this diatribe of like, in general, we're losing a lot of communities in our uh-huh. life. I'm interviewing Sarah Fryer from Next Door Tomorrow. Okay. We're becoming less neighborhoody. Yep. You usually don't know your neighbors. The like atomic family is not what it used to be. Yeah. Work took a lot of that identity for people and that community that you would get in the workplace. I think we've since COVID lost a lot of that. Mm-hmm. That sucks. Yeah. That totally sucks. Uh-huh. And I think that the feeling that I get, and I'm actually not blowing smoke. I was very skeptical coming here the first time. The feeling that I get being in, in these offices is a feeling of community. And I think that people get very energized by that feeling. Like, yeah. I think that there's just something magnetic about this idea that you're doing something with people that have a shared goal or a shared vision. And that could be some religious doctrine that could be something about your kids or your family, whatever it is. You agree with
0: that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, look, you come to work and, and it's about the people, right? I mean, I think very few of us come to work and it's just about the task at hand. You know, I don't think it's necessarily like you have to be at certain hours in the office or it's, you know, it's about being strict or anything like that. I think, you know, the way we thought about this problem is for thousands of years, people gathered together to accomplish tasks that they were passionate about Mm. together. You know, being in person, it fuels that creativity. It fuels the casual conversations. You know, I think some of that is all about how we have a shared idea about what it is we want to do and how that's going to do something good, maybe change the world. But I think a big part of it is just, you know, the different bases on which people get along, right? Like maybe you and I both like skiing. Great. We're going to talk a bit about that. That's fantastic. That brings us closer. That mm-hmm. makes us more at ease, more comfortable talking about different ideas, having conflicts, having productive arguments. Uh, you know, I think that's all part of your day-to-day, uh, you know, working with others. And I don't, I think necessarily all of that is lost when you go remote, but I do think that, you know, the kind of on-site environment is very good in creating that kind of comfort space for people to uh, collaborate. Totally. I'd say a majority
1: of our top portfolio companies uh-huh. at Kleiner Perkins yep. are in the office. Yep. And most of them are software businesses. Mm-hmm. And in your case, you're software and hardware. When I was at the Whoop office in Boston, they were all in the office. Uh Like everybody was there. Of course, because you're working on like hardware components. Same thing that Elon talks about when he talks Uh about like being in the factory. Uh Same thing, right? Like you have to be there. You can't do that remote. How much of the hardware component is a forcing function of just like, look, we have to be here?
0: Yeah. I think it's not so much that that's the forcing function. I think it was more, you know, our decision to be here. And I think it was, you know, really, it, it came from two sides. I mean, one, I think during COVID when, you know, the world was shutting down and going remote, we were growing our employee base very, very quickly. We were like, roughly speaking, doubling every year going from, um, I think we were just about 200 before COVID to, you know, 400, 800. Uh, we're now just shy of 2000 employees. One thing we realized is when you're growing that quickly, onboarding all of these new employees bringing them into the company bringing them into the mission bringing them into the culture and mm. doing all of that remotely is just tremendously difficult and so you know i think that was one of the key drivers much more so than you know hey we need a hardware lab yes we have you know some hardware components and yes we need to do some of that but i think if we wanted to be remote we could manage the hardware aspect of it but i think it was much more about the type of environment the the type of company that we wanted to be that really led us to make the decision to bring people back as quickly as we could and and, you know that started frankly for us in 2020 we quickly realized and started bringing people back but then also you know and i think this was a second and very important aspect you know we were very conscious that we didn't want to accidentally build a distributed team and so what i mean by that is you know i think when COVID happened you know a lot of people thought hey maybe maybe it's okay maybe we'll have people all over the world and i think for us the question was like well wait a minute, two months ago, we wanted everyone in San Mateo. Why do we suddenly want to have people all over the world? Like why, why make that change now? And I think, you know, we thought about that question and we said, no, actually we want to co-locate people. And, you know, we implemented a lot of tactics to, to just make sure that we don't accidentally end up in the spot uh, where the workforce is distributed.
1: What does Verkata do? Can you give like the 30 seconds? Or maybe like, how does a customer use it?
0: Sure. I mean, we build a software platform for physical security, all things physical security in one single pane of glass. It started with video security. So think of cameras in a building, like an airport or a hospital or another high skill environment. You know, we've since expanded to doing other parts of physical security in the building. So you know, people going through doors, air quality in the building, screening visitors who come into the building. So think of all aspects of physical security in a single modern cloud-based uh, software platform how I think of Virgata.
1: Raised at 3.2 billion last valuation, which was, by the way, in October of 2023. Yep. So like, that might be a real valuation. Like yeah, 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 that, yeah. that actually, that might not be fake. Yeah, yeah like I that. Think it was
0: three and a half in, uh, in October, this past October. Yeah, exactly. Was an three and a half. Yeah. The, yeah, so like, no.
1: that's not Zerp era. Like no. that was not that far long ago. Yeah. Yep. During COVID, I don't know, but you're a company that tracks physical activity in and out of workplaces yep. or schools or whatever. Sure. So- you probably, tell me if I'm wrong, didn't get the like COVID bump yep. that a bunch of these remote tooling companies yep. or mental health companies, sure. or you pick your company, yep. right? Most software companies, yep. you probably didn't get that crazy bump.
0: Yeah, I would say it was yeah, it was pretty seamless. Like we didn't get a tailwind or a headwind from COVID. Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen with our customer base a lot of shifts in the types of industries that wanted to transact with us through that period. So as you might imagine, retail slowed down a lot. To your point, offices, workspaces, there was a little bit of slowdown there. For sure, we've seen a lot of pickup uh, and advancement in um, kind of medical and, and that side of the world. You know, a lot of what Vercata does is is applicable to businesses that are going to keep running, right? And so, uh, you know, if you think of industrial customers, if you think of airports, if you think of transportation, like, you know, they're going to need to secure their premises regardless. You know, from a business momentum perspective, we felt COVID the most was on international expansion. And the reason for that was we planted our seeds uh, abroad shortly before COVID hit. So in, in late 2019, you know, and then all of a sudden, like you're told you can't get on a plane, you can't travel, you can't see your team, you can't see your customers. That was a big challenge. And I would say, you know, I think if you looked at our business metrics, that would maybe the only metric that you could see incredibly attribute to like, okay, COVID had a meaningful impact there.
1: Many entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley fancy themselves as original and first principle thinkers. Uh And this is one example of an area where you actually went with your instinct Uh that you thought was best for your company. Uh And it's funny because some of the most unique businesses that I've ever studied are outside the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Like they just do things so differently, Mm -hmm. whether that's 1Password or Zapier Uh and the way that they think about fundraising Mm -hmm. and how long they waited to do that. There's just so many examples of these companies that are outside the Bay Area. Do you ever worry about being in the thought bubble? Like, is that even a thing in your
0: mind? You know, I think when you live where we live, when you're here in the Bay Area, like, you know how everybody thinks about certain issues, right? And so you can definitely get caught up in that. A lot of it is like just seeing how the rest of the world works. A lot of it is, I mean, to your point, using examples of, you know, how other businesses run, right? How, even if you zero in on the Bay Area, you know, you can think of like how businesses are created today or maybe in the last decade, and then think back to, you know, I don't know how Cisco was born in the 90s, right? And it was Mm. a vastly different journey, right? Like what venture funding looked like was vastly different. How quickly you wanted to get to profitability was vastly different. So we tried to think of like what's right for the business and what's right for the long-term outcomes we want for the business. And then we work back from that as opposed to saying, hey, this thing is a, you know, kind of a trendy approach right now. Let's just follow that approach.
1: Yeah, but like, can we go into that more? Like why, why do you think that is? Meaning- I think every founder knows that they have a unique company Uh that their company, if you, someone really deeply actually studied their story, not just the retrospective narrative that someone tells about their company, but actually understood it. Every single one of them looks very different. And every decision that they make needs to be context dependent Uh on the, the dependencies of the company, like the things that that company needs at that time. And so I guess the thing that I don't understand Mm -hmm. is like, is it a fear of being misunderstood? Why do so many founders ask me, hey, Jubin, what does Glean do about this? What Mm -hmm. does Rippling do about
0: this? Why does that question happen? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. I mean, I think what ends up happening is at least, you know, this is- Like, why don't you just trust your gut? Yeah, I mean, I think you often do and you have to, or you have to learn to do it. But I think, you know, for a lot of founders, myself certainly, you know, included in this, So much of what you do, you do for the first time or you're seeing Mm -hmm. that scale for the first time, you know, and then decisions at the time you're making them, the decisions always feel big. So like one thing I've learned is like, if I look back in retrospect at things we've done, oh, in retrospect, it's very easy to think about it, right? And if you think about the decision that you're taking in the moment, it feels feels very large. Right. And and oftentimes it's the first time you're dealing with this kind of thing. And so, you know, I think some of that kind of need for advice or need for someone else telling you how they've handled the situation just comes from, well, crap, this is a scary situation. Like I need more brains helping me think of how to navigate it.
1: Mm-hmm. But that can lead you astray. Sure. That can lead you astray because oftentimes yeah. like, yeah, you're trying to do something very contrarian. Yeah. And so getting the input of a bunch of people that are just pattern matching across a bunch of different companies can have an adverse effect, can't it?
0: Oh, for sure. And I think this is where, you know, I think you, uh, you choose your advisors wisely. And, you know, I kind of think of it as, you know, at any point in your, in your life cycle as a founder, you want to have, you know, a few people that you look up to that have been ahead of where you are today. And they're your true core group that you go ask these questions. So I think of it less as, hey, like, let's gather data and like, what's the pattern? What did most people do? I tried to think more of what did a company that had to navigate a similar situation do that resulted in a good outcome for that company? Hmm. Uh, And if you find those examples, I think you often end up with, you know, with advice, with tidbits of information that that is not actually pattern matched, that, that ends up being, you know, kind of quite original. And, you know, I think it gives you, a little bit more of the reinforcement. It actually gives you the courage to follow your gut or to follow those, uh, you know, those kinds of like first principled ways of thinking.
1: Who are some of the folks that are in that camp for you today? Like the next era of business leaders that you you want Verkata to go aspire to? try and be those types of companies. Yes, yeah,
0: so one company that we, you know, we we love seeing their journey and, and and we look at a lot of decisions they made along the way is uh, is Palo Alto Networks. Mm-hmm. We love the business. And I think in 2012, when roughly when they went public, that business looked very similar to Verkata, right? It was a hardware, software systems company. Uh, you know, there's fewer of those than kind of, you know, maybe the pure SaaS plays these days. So that's one business that, you know, we've seen execute phenomenally well. And certainly as we've talked to people who, you know, who work there and navigated decisions, uh, we've gotten phenomenal advice from them. And, and so, you know, I think that's an example, but, you know, you always want to have a list of, of, of companies like that, that you, you know, you sort of see some parallels and you look up to it and ultimately, you know, you build respect for the people who run them and that's where you, you get some advice.
1: Yeah. I mean, even Palo Alto, they got rid of their CEO yep. twice. Yeah. Could you imagine that now that you've built the kingdom of Ricotta in (laughs) San Mateo? Like, what would you do? Let's just imagine. Yeah. Can I just like play make believe with you? Go for it. And like, there is a coup. Yeah. And you're out. Yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. I think you're a very firm leader of this company. But like, would you go do another company, you think?
0: You know, I think so. I think I probably would. I, I think it depends on the circumstances really, right? I mean, I think- You know, these things happen in kind of a variety of ways. And, you know, I think, look, like there is a scenario where the job I do today becomes a job that, you know, maybe is not the job that I love doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that scenario, I mean, I'm all for hiring someone who can, you know, build the value faster. And as a, you know, sure. yeah, I think I would be. I mean, I, you know- I would, Meaning
1: like, do you really admire Palo Alto Networks in all the ways that, that they've built that I business? Mean, I
0: think it's astonishing how, built, how big they got that business, right? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look back to it in 2012, I think they were doing something like 100, 200 million in annual sales. Uh, you know, today they're a $100 billion company yeah. and that takes transformations, right? And I think, you know, there is a point at which you have to be aware of like how much you are scaling. And if the scale of the business is outpacing you, you have to be open to that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, I, you know, I would like to think that if that were happening at, at Verkata, I would be open to that. I mean, that's not the case right now, but, you know, I definitely think about it. I, you know, and I think you have to think about it for yourself. I think, you know, you think about it for everyone on the team, right? Because the business, you know, I think if you're in the situation we're in, is growing so quickly that the likelihood that the business outgrows the capabilities of individuals that you haven't seen at any given point in time is is frankly likely.
1: But interestingly, the only person that actually gets the benefit of the doubt or the people are the founders. They always have the longest. The longest view on the company. Yeah, Yeah, but also the longest rope. Meaning every executive is always up for getting topped. Sure, That's a big part of your job is to evaluate how executives are are scaling. Yep. And I suppose the board's job is to evaluate. evaluate. But do you think that's...
0: I mean, I think it's the board job. I think, you know, to some degree, I see it as my own job. Do you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, look, if... if Is
1: there something that's happened recently where you're like, oh man, I I did not scale in the way that I should have? on this thing.
0: I can certainly think of like in the journey of Verkata, I've had like, you know, massive f*** ups along, you know, along the journey. Yeah. I'd like to think that, you know, for most of them, I was able to recover and kind of correct and learn from those mistakes. But yeah, I mean, I think for sure there is paths that you could see a company going where, you know, the skill set that, you know, a founder and seed like myself, you know, has might not align with what the company needs. Yeah. That's totally fine.
1: Yeah. 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 I think like it's such a, Cool and interesting job Yeah, that why would you want to? Nobody Switch, wants yeah. to let go. Yeah. And I actually think that the companies like Palo Alto Networks yep. that are that self aware yep. and selfless yep. to be so mission driven about the company that what they really want yep. is to see that to completion, yep. that they'd be willing to leave the throne. Oh, yeah. That's a very special yep. type of leader and company. Yep. And I think that's an outlier type company.
0: Sure, I mean, I think we hope to build an outlier type of company for the long run. And if the point in time came where I think that was what I deemed or what we deemed as the right decision for the company, I would hope I would be willing to take that decision.
1: When I walked in to your office, there's the pictures of everybody's face that's sequenced by when they joined the company. Yep. How cool is it gonna be when you inevitably take this thing public? And so many of those people are standing with you Oh yeah, on the stock exchange. Like how special is that going to be?
0: Well, it's going to be awesome. I think it's going to be a great moment for everyone. I think, you know, a lot of people look forward to that. I also, you know, very much think of that, you know, kind of as a milestone, not an end goal. And I think that's important, right? And I I do a lot to remind, I think everyone at the company of that, right? The, the IPO is just another way of raising money. And it is a moment of providing liquidity to a broad range of folks. But I do think that, you know, where we are as a business and the size of the markets we play in gives us a lot of runway for many, many, many years, you know, kind of post a public offering if if that were to uh, take place.
1: I noticed that you sit on the engineering floor. Yep. You're an engineer by heart. Sure. Even... As we were getting ready for this, you're like literally tinkering with the video cameras. Yeah, I, like, like, I like cameras, that's so you wanna make sure that's, the setup is yeah, good. That's yeah, that's your yeah. thing. That's yeah. always like, you do. You would do that for fun. Yep. You do do that for fun. I
0: do do it for fun.
1: Do you like being the CEO? Meaning those types of jobs, yep. or I should say the types of responsibilities that you would do for fun, yep. that give you energy, yep. are very much engineering centric. Uh-huh. Now, this is, again, pretty consistent in Silicon Valley. Do you like the job more, less, or as much because today there's very little tinkering yep. that you're actually doing. Yep. You're managing people, correct? you're fundraising, you're setting and defining the vision and you're hiring. Yep. There's like the big three buckets yeah, of yeah, the yeah, job. Yeah. Those are all very like extroverted tasks. Yep people oriented, yep. just not like building a camera. Yep. Are you surprised by how much you enjoy this part of it? Yeah. Do you feel like you've had to grow to like it? What's your relationship to the actual responsibility yeah. of the day to day?
0: You know, I think I honestly, yeah, honestly, I, I love my job. I love what I do. I, yeah. I'm like, I wake up happy every morning and like, I, I literally can't wait to come to work, which sounds like totally cliche, but it's, it's totally true. I'm very conscious of the types of things I like doing and the types of things I don't like doing as much, and I try to structure my team, my world, my life so that I get to do enough of the things that I love doing. Uh, one of which is, is is building stuff, right? And I think, you know, even in my role today, you know, I spend a good amount of time with engineers, with engineering leaders, with our you know kind of production and design teams. And that keeps me close to the product. It also keeps me close to the customer. You know, that aspect of it is for sure there. And I think to your point, that's part of who I am. I love it. Even if I had to only do that at night, I'm going to do that for eternity. That just ingrained in me. But, you know, I think the way I would, describe my job and maybe what I really like about uh, being in my position, which, you know, I also I consider it a great, crazy privilege to be able to do any of this and, and, yeah, and it's to build. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's I mean, it's, it blows my mind. Right? Yeah. Like I sit here and I'm like, eight years ago or seven years ago, there was nothing and there was my living room and there was four guys yeah. and now 2,000 employees and 20,000 customers. So first, I I just really appreciate to even have this privilege of doing this. But what I like about it is... You know, if you think about it, you know, within any organization, like within a company, people run across different challenges and, you know, hopefully they solve many of the challenges and when they can't solve it, they bring the challenge to their manager and then it just keeps trickling up. And so, you know, sometimes the way I describe my job is the hardest problems just kind of like naturally bubble up to me. And there's a wide range of problems and that's actually really, really cool because, I couldn't tell you that there is ever two weeks that are the same for me, or even maybe two days that are the same for me. It's like my life changes and the types of things I work on are often pretty difficult. Often, you know, kind of many people thought about them and it, you know, sort of like trickles up to me. That's like an awesome spot to be because you just, if you embrace it, I mean, not all of these problems are fun, but if you embrace it, Man, you can learn so much about such a variety of topics. And I still have enough flexibility to be able to say, you know, with a good team that we've built, to be able to say, hey, these are, you know, I don't know, the 10 problems that bubbled up to me this week. These three are in a category that I really like. So I'm going to dig deep on these. And these other four, you know, maybe some of my executive team or someone else can go handle. So I think, you know, that flexibility and that ability to work on really kind of hard things is... um is definitely very exciting.
1: Do you do anything intentional about regulating where your time is spent? Yeah. Do you do any look backs on the week yep. and prioritize the big problems? Like, how do you think about where your time is spent? And how do you prioritize the things that you want to make sure you continue to carve out that give you energy? Yeah,
0: for sure. So I think short answer is yes. You know, I, I think you have to be very conscious of how you spend your time. Otherwise, you end up getting pulled into things that are urgent but not necessarily important. So I like to think of what's important and, and that's often much longer term than the kind of urgent things. But you know, to give you a sense of tactics, like I hate large meetings. When I look at my calendar, I try not to have any meetings with more than five individuals. Uh, if Some meeting that's larger than that, it better be an all hands or a presentation or something like that. But generally I think people work better in smaller groups. Like, so that's maybe one hack. I try to isolate blocks of time in my calendar. So every day, I think it's very easy when you're in my position to just get your day, you know, literally blocked back to back in 20, 30, 40 minute chunks, whatever. Almost every day I try to have, you know, an hour or two a flexible time in the afternoon where I can, you know, roam, I can talk to random people, I can check in on a project, I can like just jump into something. And I find that very, very valuable. It's just an informal way of gathering information from the company.
1: Almost every day you, you block off an Almost hour. every day. Like I, I, I
0: try to make sure my day is never like a grid from, you know, kind of beginning to end. Other things like my evenings are precious to me. So I would generally describe myself as an evening person. And so, you know, my day doesn't start as early as many CEOs. Like, I, I, you know, I
1: don't know. A lot of tech founders, they start a little later than they say they do. Yeah, they're yeah, usually, yeah. they're yeah. usually like nine, 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So that's the camp I'm in. And I'm like, like
1: Aaron Levy says he putters around in the morning. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's so like, I, I'm
0: very much in that camp. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I, my brain, like, you know, the boot sequence is long and then when it's fully booted, <laughs> it's like very powerful and it stays online for a long time. Uh, so so that, that's kind of who I am. But where I was going with it is, you know, then my, you know, sort of my evenings after I get home and my kids go to bed, that is like my focus time. And, you know, that's very, very valuable because, you know, you don't have distractions and, you know, any kind of task that you want to really dive into. Okay, you get that two, three hours of like uninterrupted flow. After the kids go to bed. After the kids go Like think of like, you know, until probably typically it's midnight or 1 a.m. That's your flow state. That's my flow state and I love it. And sometimes I let that go until, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. But Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I get into something... I love it, right? That's like from back being an engineer. And like, if you
1: if you go to a four or five, you have no problem. You're not like, oh, I have meetings in the morning. You'll just cancel the meetings if well, you go to I mean, four it, or five.
0: It depends, right? I mean, I think I try to make sure I get you know a decent amount of sleep. I think that's important. But yeah, I mean, I, what was know, the I last rabbit to,
1: hole that you went down till four or five in the morning?
0: On weekends, it happens quite often. Right? Seriously, because oh, yeah, it'll be you know it'll be a Friday and people and it's will go a business to sleep. problem. Well, it'll be work, it'll be something, something product related, work related, and you think about it and I'll give you a crazy example, right? Cameras are sealed containers, right? So you seal the camera when you put it outdoors and you have this problem with like fogging. Like if water gets into your camera, it'll fog internally. And so, you know, we're, solving this problem in 15 different ways. But yeah, one of these evenings, I got really into reading about water vapor transmissivity of materials, right? So like how much water vapor can you push through literally aluminum or, you know, rubber? Uh, And, you know, you just like read, 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 read more. And, you know, you find experiments and things. And ultimately it's super fun because you come back to the office the next day or next week and you have a really good chat with the team. And it's just fun.
1: Why do you hate huge meetings?
0: I think- People are more direct and open and less afraid of sharing how they actually think in a smaller group. And I think it's almost like probably some psychological or evolutionary thing, but I just find, you know, in a small group, it doesn't matter if I'm in the meeting or if I'm not in the meeting, you just get much more thoughtful participation from the three, four five people. You get into the 12, 15 person meeting and, you know, you get a little bit of the, someone says something because they feel like they need to participate or someone doesn't say something because, oh, it's too many people in the room and they don't know how you know how it'll be received. So I just find that small group is um, just fundamentally much more collaborative.
1: Do you especially worry about that now that you're like the CEO of this oh, yeah. huge company? Like obviously you don't view yourself that way, No, yeah. but everybody else does. Yeah. That's got to also weigh on you.
0: Yeah, I think it's something that you have to be, conscious about. And I think in my case, I had to actually work on it. I I remember very clearly, you know, the company was maybe 200 people at the time. And up to that point, I knew everyone. I, I knew everyone by name. I think I'm everyone's friend. And I think, you know, a new employee joined around that time. And on their first day, I woke up and I started asking them about their project and the details of that. Of course, later that evening, I get an angry call from that person's manager. It's like, Philip, what are you doing scaring this person on their first day? I'm like, I I was just trying to be helpful and understand what, you know, (laughs) what the, what the projects were. Uh, But you do have to, I acknowledge, like at some point you have to appreciate that. Okay. People do think about the dynamics and the hierarchy, but, but if you're conscious of that, I definitely try to have an interface that's very approachable. Like I want my employees to talk to me. I want them to be unafraid to debate things with me, disagree with me. Frankly, I think healthy argument, arguing, Is very, very good, right? Like, if everyone has the same opinion, chances are you're not building the best possible product or you're not making the best possible decision. If you have opposing opinions, it's somewhere between them that, you know, somewhere in that arguing that you find the cracks in the foundation of what you're saying, and then you can fill those cracks, you can fix it, and, you know, and you ship or build something really good.
1: When I look at your background, Stanford, Started a company while while at Stanford, right? Sold it to Chag. Yep. KP Company. Yep. Should have been on our radar, you know, like should have been on a bunch of radars. Yep. But you spent four years at Chag, right? Kind of running the yeah almost five yeah almost five yeah yeah. You were not an unknown quantity at that point. If you ask any VC, what they're looking for is like kind of this, (laughs) you know, like you know, you tell me, yeah. So like like. Started a company, yep. you know, like it was a, not their home run, but it was it yep. was like enough it to was something, yeah. it was something. Yep. They want to get back in the game. Yep. Stanford, like super smart engineer, all these things, right? Do you feel like you were underestimated or misunderstood after that? Meaning, when you were going out to raise funding for I don't know the seed, yep.
0: or the A, yep, were people clamoring? Yes and no. The yes part of it, you know, I think. Because of what I've done before, it was easy to get meetings. So it was very easy to get in front of- You were walking up and down Sand Hill. Yeah, you could get, you know, everyone on Sand Hill would, you know, would be excited and and would want to take the meeting. I think where it was tricky was the industry we chose, which initially was squarely video security and squarely, you know, from the beginning we said we would need to make the hardware, we would need to make the camera. It was an industry that I think it was a mix of like, It's little known. It's not down the, you know, kind of common path of what, you know, in 2016, I think, uh, what a lot of VCs were thinking about. And I think second to that, there was sort of a graveyard of startups or companies who, you know, had tried to do some sort of, um, you know, video analytics for security type of startup in the prior decade. Um, And so I think those two things made people are really reluctant on the market, right? So like, yeah, in the beginning of the company, raising money, especially relative to what the climate was like in 2016, uh, was quite difficult for us.
1: How long did it take before, you know, when you were explaining the idea in the Uh early days and you'd say like, we're building a video camera company and like in your gut, it didn't feel great to say that, you Uh know, like it wasn't the sexy thing to say, especially at that time. How long before you started to believe yeah. that like, screw everybody else, uh-huh. yeah. like I am building a video camera company. Yeah, yeah. People don't understand what that actually means. Uh-huh. I see uh-huh. the future that I'm uh-huh. going to pull forward. Yeah. But like how long did before it took for you to be like, yeah. okay, I don't have that feeling inside.
0: I would describe it almost as, you know, kind of a little bit of a wave, right? So I think we definitely started there right? We started on the high, like we were very convinced that we were onto something, that we found a market. Uh, You know, we had talked to enough customers. We kind of played with the technology enough and competitors' products. We knew we had something special at the very beginning. We were very excited. So we started there. You know, I think we went out to kind of talk to folks and, and raise our first, you know, seed round and A round. And that was crushing. That was like the bottom of the wave. And I think for months, like literally we were like, ah, is this thing going to work? Is this a good idea? Maybe we're just completely crazy. Maybe we're not seeing something. But, you know, gladly, I think we had already invested enough. We were already far along the journey that, you know, we said sort of no matter how this plays out, you know, we're going to try to see through at least to the first, you know, kind of product launch and, and market reception. And then, you know, I think the reception of the market once we launched was extremely positive, right? So that pulled us back up you know, it's probably like 2018. So maybe call it 18 months into the journey. You know, we started seeing enough customer traction and enough, you know, meaningful deals or meaningful size deals early on in the company's life cycle that we said, we were onto something and this thing actually will likely work.
1: And from the get-go, did you know, did you hone in on this idea? Uh huh. Was this the idea when you got the gang yep. together to start working on a company? Was it to start working on Verkata? the camera company?
0: Not at all. This is early 2016. We, you know, we started getting back together and we, and what were you
1: doing at that time before? So
0: I had left my prior job yeah. and I got a green card, which unlocked my ability to basically be unemployed and, you know, and think of my next, my next startup. Right. Yeah. So, I convinced one of my co-founders, James, to leave his job. He was uh, actually working at a law firm at the time. Uh, he's a computer scientist who ended up being a lawyer. He hated law. I was Perfect. convinced him to get back into engineering. And it was initially two of us, and we gave ourselves, you know, we, we told ourselves we'd take all of 2016 to sort of look at different ideas, talk very openly to many people, uh, you know, kind of brainstorm, build things every day. And we did build a lot of stuff. And if we landed on something that we liked, you know, we would go build a company around it. And if we didn't, you know, we would go back to the industry 12 months later. That was the plan. About six, maybe five, six months into the journey is where the larger group, the four of us got together around this idea of video security. And that quickly solidified as an idea that we liked.
1: And in 2016, how old were you? 29. 29, were you married? No,
0: not yet. Not yet, had you met your now wife? I have met her years prior, years prior, Stanford. But yes, I. But you hadn't rekindled it yet. We had not rekindled it yet.
1: And so, like maybe what I'm trying to get at is like, what's the calculus in your head? Yeah, you were a VP of product management Uh or whatever, right? Like you were, you had a great job. Sure, you were probably getting looks at other great jobs. Uh At the time in 2016, there was a lot of interesting companies being born, Uh or in the early days, or really having traction. And I imagine there was some gravity pulling you towards those two. Like, what was the trade-off?
0: I like building stuff, and I think I at that point in my life, I I knew in particular that I I enjoyed the risk, I enjoyed the zero to one, and I think I was also keenly aware that as sort of life goes on, life gets more complex, and you know, cost of living and your ability to do these things doesn't necessarily increase. Right. And so I think for me, it was a good moment in time where I think with my prior experience and, and, and kind of selling the company to check that I did, I had the ability and the flexibility and a fairly uncomplex life, right? Fairly uncomplex personal yeah, life. Yeah. Like single guy living yeah, in the Bay Area. Yeah. Single guy, like low a nest of, egg from the, right, from the acquisition. Right. Exactly. Had some savings from that. And so you but know, it didn't change your life. It, it, wasn't, it yeah, wasn't, it wasn't like, change. I'm not going to work forever. Yeah, I like, yeah, Definitely yeah. not. But, it, you know, I think it definitely gave me the, the ability to say, Hey, I will take a year off work and I won't have income. And yeah. during that year I can, you know, brainstorm and, you know, hopefully land on an idea, you know, and frankly, I think that period was fantastic. Right. And I think you have to have, you know, a certain level of like self-discipline and drive. You know, I probably work my hardest or, or, or one of my hardest in that year. Like, you know, we'd wake up early, we'd build things, we'd build prototypes, we didn't know if it would work or not. But yeah, I mean, that's ultimately what culminated in, in kind of the idea around Verkata. And I think, yeah, for anyone thinking to start, I, I always tell folks like, not jumping into the very first idea, but giving yourself some time, even if it's just a few months to, you know, really explore things, talk to other people about it and zero in on the thing that makes most sense. I mean, at least for us in this case, proved like extremely valuable.
1: Brian Long from Attentive, Uh uh, the Attentive founder, did the exact same thing. Actually wrote a book about it now called Problem Hunting where he had started a company prior to Attentive that they were getting like a 700 k PO from a Fortune 100 company. Uh But in his heart of hearts, he was like, this isn't a big enough company that I want to build. And I think, you know, his point was like, why are there so many like infrastructure monitoring tools? Because Uh it's like all these developers are being told, go spin out of your company. The problem that you see, go solve it. And then now we have like a hundred of the same solution. Were you convinced that you wanted to be the CEO? Because again, you're like a tinkerer at heart. Uh Did you have a strong desire to be the CEO?
0: I wouldn't say I had a strong desire. By the way, it's I okay to say my, yes. Yeah, no, I, I, would. I yeah. would. I would say it. I, I think there's many aspects of my job that I naturally enjoy. And I think, you know, in the group of, of, of folks that I worked with, like it just made sense at the time. So, you know, but I think I was always the presenter. I was always the guy who would go and like pitch the idea to someone else. I was always convincing people to like, you know, gather around it and join it, right? So yeah, I think there was a lot of, there are properties of of me that are, you know, I think the very introverted engineer who loves the craftsmanship and the really obsessing about a particular aspect of a solution. Uh, and then I think I'm I'm very aware of the fact that there is an extroverted side of me and I have a strong need for people and I really enjoy it. And then that's like another part of my drive. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a combination that just like worked well for me.
1: You have this thing that the team tells me about of yeah. like the first 10 people yep. in the team really matter. Yep. And I imagine that philosophy was not just the teams that you build from scratch now, but also the first 10 to 20 people in the cementing of the company. Oh yeah. Did you have that fervent of a belief about? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's it's both. Like what is the belief?
0: I, well, I think that the belief, and I think this is both my belief, I think it's Hans's belief, my co-founder had, you know, kind of similar experience with this, but but mm-hmm. I think our belief is that, the first few people who you hire for any given team or for the company that matter, set the tone for the rest of that team. You know, we firmly believe if you get those first hires right, their ability to attract more great people will be exceptional. I think conversely, if you screw up the first few people on the team, you know, that team is likely set up for failure and then making a change or correction later on is very expensive, right? So if you pay attention to it at the beginning, I think the thesis is, you know, spend all of your time on the first five or 10 hires of any given team. If you get that right, you know, things are likely or have a good chance of progressing well, you know, kind of conversely, if you don't get it right, the cost later will be, will be tremendous because you have to make a big change. And, you know, at, at that point, you know, the team might be 30, 40, 50 people and recreating that from scratch is, is very difficult
1: you raised a uh, $15 million series A, series a right? Yeah. When you raised that money, did you know what to do? You raise all this money, uh-huh. you know, we do a lot of series A's, yep. and then it's almost like VCs just assume that founders are like, oh yeah, like the- This uh, is how we're gonna spend These are it. already uh-huh. perfect capital allocators. Uh-huh. Going back to our point of like, when you're like in a room of darkness and yep. you're kind of like <laughs> feeling around, yep. and now you have this like bank, Yep and you got to figure out like, how do I use this? Yep. One of the challenges that I've noticed is that founders are still very used to them doing all the things. And so part of it is unbundling this muscle memory. Tell me if you think I'm wrong, but like when you get your first series A check to go delegate responsibilities and that delegation happens through capital allocation. Do you agree with that? Like, did you, was that a transition that was oh, tough for you? Oh, 100%. Not sure. I
0: think, you know, if you're, at least in my case, you know, kind of as a founder, you, you know, at the beginning you obsess over everything, right? Like everything has to be right. And what's the way to do everything right? Do it yourself, right? Well, that's the most wrong statement I could make, right? <laughs> but that's definitely how you think at the very beginning. When the company's tiny, you're doing everything from QuickBooks and finances to, you know, being a product leader, being a salesperson. And I think, you know, probably the the wisest and best allocation of money, you know, early on was hiring people who've been ahead of the scale that we needed, right? So like- But and, not too far ahead. Not too far ahead. You want people who can get their hands dirty and, and do the work. And, and that's, that's the tricky balance. But you want people who, you know, kind of are experienced and can bring that on and, you know, can move the needle forward. Pick any aspect of the business. I think to this day, you know, I always try to think, where can we hire someone who's you know the kind of expert who can take us through that next phase?
1: Were you asking people, how do I sequence my executive hires? Like, what did you, or did you like sit in a room no, with your you co-founders? No, you, like,
0: you just look at what's breaking and like- Like what's the breaking, but everything's yeah. breaking. Everything's breaking. Everything's breaking. And so- where, where are you the bottleneck? <laughs> right. And maybe what do you not like doing, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think, man, I'm thinking back to the early days. Um, like,
1: how did you sequence the executive hiring?
0: Yeah, I think it was- or did you hire ICs well some of them we promoted from within so we've hired people you know that we felt were high potential and then they they took on you know more and more responsibility some of it was you know the i mean I'll give you like a very trivial example right like the company started you know i own finance i think i was the cfo that you have to nominate in the delaware c corp or whatever at some point i'm definitely not doing that one of my co-founders did that You know, at some point you hire an accounting firm and then you're like, wait a minute, we have enough stuff here that we need someone to run finance. Right. And so then you hire your head of finance or head of accounting or something like that. So, you know, I think there was some of that. There were some areas where, you know, it was like more clear. Right. So I think, you know, if you take marketing or sales, for example, right, like in both of those aspects, we knew that we needed someone who would be in seat, who would be driving, Promotional programs and outreach to customers and demand generation, Um, and so that was a role that you know we opened the search on sort of as soon or maybe even a couple of months before we had the product launched in market. Some of them, I I would guess, you know, we were you had
1: some foresight on.
0: Yeah, we had some foresight on, or you know, some ideas on, right? And 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 then you just execute and kind of play it out. It's funny
1: because like uh, now today you're pulling those examples of a. You know, you're the CFO, then you get the co-founder to do it, then you get the accountant to do it, yep. an external firm, then you get a, you know, a CFO or yep. a VP of finance. Yep. When I was doing the tour with you, yep. you've taken this all the way to the extreme, which is you'll hire a interior designer full-time because you don't want to yep. externalize that. Yep. A welder yep. is on staff yes. full-time. Yep. There was all these roles that you would never think would be internal to a tech company. It's funny just thinking through the progression that you've gone through. You're taking this all the way to the logical extreme, but it's based on the values that are important. And so it strikes me that probably what your thought process was, was, hey, it is very important that people are in the office. I want to create a space, going back to our earlier conversation, that people like being in the office. How am I going to do that? And then you probably went through and did the exact same thing where you're like hiring interior designers from the exterior, you know, like hiring
0: welders. Is that fair? Well, yeah, I think it's like, it's sort of follows a a natural evolution, right? Like it's, you know, you start with exactly what you said, which is we want to be in office. We want to have fantastic space. You know, I think you also try to balance that against the reality of like commercial real estate is really expensive and, you know, hey, we're an eight-year-old company. We're not, you know, kind of crazy flush with cash. We haven't found an oil well in the ground, right? So, so you, you know, want to balance sort of a very good result with a very reasonable approach. Uh, and I think that's what led to some of these, uh, you know, these these kinds of outcomes that, that you're mentioning where, yeah, you know, we found that we do just enough projects within our space here and spaces mm-hmm. around the world that, you know, some of these roles, it makes more sense to have on staff rather than hiring outside firms that, you know, obviously charge more for that.
1: Yeah. Do you have other ideas of interesting roles that most people wouldn't think of that you think you should bring in-house?
0: Well, I mean, I think going back to your um, earlier statement of the good old days at LinkedIn or Google, Facebook, whatever, you know, many many years ago, I mean, post-COVID, with the city being shut down, we, you know, we had hairdressers on staff. uh, You know, we obviously built a commercial kitchen and served meals when, you know, many restaurants uh, weren't open or open back yet because of staff shortages, right? So, you know, definitely we built you know, a lot of that, like life facility support into the building. I um, mean, during COVID itself, we had nurses on staff that would do PCR same day tests, uh, you know, for any employee who wanted it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's incredible. I think it's just, it follows necessity. And then I think the way we think about it is you evaluate the benefit that it brings versus, you know, the, the kind of cost and, and often it's, it's worth it.
1: I think it's incredible. Isn't it one of the biggest kitchens
0: in the city, like you're- I think in San Mateo, we're the biggest commercial kitchen. And
1: and so going back to like the commentary around zigging when everyone else is zagging, the narrative today is around austerity measures, Uh cutting, layoffs, Uh getting rid of the perks, remote because it's cheaper, it's more flexible. The list goes on and on. And it seems like you're doing the exact opposite. You know, I think we're- You're growing, you grew almost 50% last year. You're gonna grow almost 40%
0: 40% this year? Yes. So the company is definitely growing and it's, you know, I think I would describe it. It's definitely good times for us. Like the market's there, the product's selling. And yeah. so, you know, I think that drives a lot of that momentum. Uh, you know, I would still say we're a small player in a giant market and we're seeing a lot of pull and a lot of demand, which to some degree you could say that enables and funds that activity. But the other thing I would tell you is that. You know, I think we're thoughtful and concentrated on how and where we spend money, right? So, you know, I'll give you an example. We do events for our employees. Uh, we often have the debate of how many events and how grand and how much should we spend, you know, per head on a, I don't know, a sales kickoff mm-hmm. or a engineering offsite or something like that. And I think in recent years, you know, I think our bias has been, you know, we want to give folks the energy and we want to give them amazing experiences. And so we concentrate the spend, right? Rather than doing quarterly, you know, big kickoff events, you know, we'll do free kickoffs that are like called more cash efficient and one big kickoff at the beginning of the year for sales. Right. And, and that costs us, you know, more for that one event, but I think it's also like appreciated more by the employees than if you just took the same amount of money and like evenly spread it and, you know, instead of one epic event, you had sort of like, you know, called four more average events, right? So I think we applied that kind of logic to kind of the many elements of, um, you know, of perks and things that we do in the
1: company. You mentioned there was a bunch of things that you screwed up. Going back to my question of like, where did you not scale? Yeah. Like what were areas where you didn't scale? And yeah. you're like, look, I screwed up a bunch of things. Oh yeah. What are some of the ones that still hurt?
0: I think the the one that's, that's very obvious from the early days was, when the company was growing and we're called about 200 people, there's two things that, that I screwed up big time at that point. One, I was unaware that, you know, at that point, the next employee who joins doesn't know who I am, mm. right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, today I invest a lot in, in kind of like different forums and questions and all hands and different things so that employees know who I am, how I think, how what my framework for decision-making is. Um, I didn't do that at the time. So, you know, all of a sudden, probably if you're employee 250, I'm just a random asshole running the company. That's Mm -hmm. all you know about me, right? So that was, you know, that was kind of one category of screw up. I think, you know, where it culminated and it was, you know, kind of a, a pretty big f*** up on my part, right? We had a incident with some of our sales guys uh, who engaged in bad behavior, right? And, and we should have like sent a very clear message to the team and, you know, kind of parted ways with the, those folks. We didn't do that. The mistake was twofold. We, we waited, we, you know, fired them later for for their misbehavior. But I think combined with the first point I made, It sent this like wave of ambiguity to the team about who I am. And it just clouded everyone's like, is Philip the right guy? Is this the right company? How do I feel about the team? How do I feel about being here? You know, and I think that was, you know, that was kind of a, you know, in retrospect, a very obvious, a very massive screw up, you know, which could have been like very, very easily remedied, right? Like all it needed to happen was take decisive action. Obviously we tried to do what's right for, you know, kind of everyone involved, but- uh, you know, ultimately, it's very clear that in retrospect, that was not the right decision. Yeah. But then what was tremendous, and, and this is, you know, kind of my key learning is that it was, you know, one bad decision that then lived with us for kind of months after, mm. right? And then I had to do so much work to sort of undo that bad decision. You know, that was kind of a, a very, very critical learning in terms of like, you know, how you manage, how you communicate with the team. And it was definitely, you know, kind of going back to your question, a point in time where the scale of the business and the rate of the growth of the business, definitely on this particular question, outpaced my rate of learning or my ability to consult the right people. And yeah, you know, it caused quite a bit of trouble for some time, which, you know, obviously we've worked very hard to, uh, you know, to kind of recover since then.
1: When that happens, Yep. What does that feeling yeah. feel like?
0: Like when you go home- Oh, it feels like shit. I wanted to do the right thing. I talked to my team, the team, like we all wanted to do the right thing. You know, I think ultimately we made the wrong decision. You know, I don't think anyone intentionally made the wrong decision, yeah. right? But it was objectively sure the wrong decision, right? And so you you have this weight because, you know, all of a sudden, like, you feel like the entire world, everyone, you know, your team, your, you know, your friends, like investors at the time that I was talking to, everyone begins to judge you and talk to you through the lens of that decision. I think it really illuminated to me how important the clarity of, you know, kind of communication internally and internally, and like the clarity of handling these kind of situations is important. I mean, I think, you know, the way you learn is you you know, you make mistakes and you correct them. That's what I fundamentally think. And so I can be only as good as the rate at which I fix my mistakes uh, when they happen and and how I learn from them.
1: And so you're experiencing the hardest, hairiest problems that the company has. The good news is easy for you to, you know, for for it to get to you. But then on the other hand- most of our conversation is about like how well the business is doing. Uh-huh. You know, like the valuation and yep. the people on the cap table yep. and all these people that are coming to this nice fancy office. Like, isn't that kind of oh, the yeah. two worlds that you're always balancing? Which is like you have this HR issue, but the company is like just raised a massive round. Yep. You know? Yep. Like you have this hardware issue, yep. but the company is like one of the darlings of the valley right now. Like isn't that constantly the tension? It is. That it you is. kind of like uh yeah, have to, have yeah, to. I it's, guess a, it's it,
0: always this balance. I mean, I, my favorite tool in this, in this bucket is, uh, I call it customer therapy, uh, which is whenever things go sideways, I just talk to my customers and they have great things to say and that just brings you right back up. Um, Interesting, so like that, you'll just that,
1: go jump on a customer call. Yeah, if
0: you just jump on a, I mean, you know, with I think 20,000 or so customers now, like most of them have extremely good and extremely happy things to say about the product. And to me, that's, you know, a very clarifying north star okay, things can go sideways, you know, a fundraise might not be as good or whatever thing is happening in, you know, internally. But at the end of the day, when you talk to those customers and they express, you know, sort of like a very pure gratitude for how you've improved their business or their life, or you've, you know, made people, you know, safer or or more efficient, that definitely balances it all out.
1: You grew the company 40 to 50% last year. Uh Uh-huh. Now your base is what, 2,000-ish employees? Yeah,
0: just shy of 2,000.
1: Worldwide? Yep. Like across how many offices?
0: Uh, I think we have 17
1: offices worldwide. 17. Yep. You're going to grow another 600. Like what's the headcount-ish? 600? 600 plus. 600 600 plus? Yep. Is that not just daunting? Like are you not just like, holy hell, like how are we going to go find (laughs) and compete for 600 of the best people in the world that opt into the Vercada culture? You know, like that's like- Got to be absolute top of mind for you.
0: Yeah, I think if you think about it as a single number on a spreadsheet, it is scary, and you have exactly the fault that you have, which is how the hell am I going to find six hundred great people? I think the secret there is is kind of what you were talking about earlier, which is delegation and divide and conquer. Right. So, okay, you take six hundred people, we're hiring them across seventeen different offices, mm-hmm. and then within each office, you know, you've got directors, managers, and you know, you get it down to like okay, I have so many managers and they each have a headcount goal of plus eight. That's a very tractable number. Uh, and so, you know, you you kind of break it down um, and it makes it much more palatable. I also think, you know, kind of the geographic dispersion of the office and the ability to tap into the different labor labor markets has been extremely helpful, uh, you know, helpful in, in hiring. And the last bit, which I think was a surprise and wasn't something we expected, but but has been magical for us is, when you open these remote offices, hmm. people running the remote office feel like they have it's like their own. You know, it's like all of a sudden you don't feel like you're just a cog in the giant machine. You have like your own presence and you can make it your own and you're, you like, the you're of, like the co You're like the co founder of South Lake or yeah. you're the co founder of Austin or whichever, you know, whichever city. And so what we've seen is like you know, a huge increase in kind of like momentum on execution and energy, especially as it relates to hiring, because you know it's like this fresh start for people, and, and so that's been kind of a very good part of this journey of opening offices around the world.
1: Of the two thousand people, almost half are in go to market. Uh
0: huh. Is yeah. that right? Just about a thousand in the sales org. Yeah.
1: And then of the thousand that are in R and D, let's just say, or not, the not good. Yeah, the rest of the company. Twenty yep. percent are.
0: Hardware? Uh, so yeah, on the R&D side, it's yeah. about, I would say 80, 85% of the engineering is software engineering. Uh, and then it's a pretty lean, but great hardware team.
1: That also surprises me. Yep. I don't know, I think of Verkata as a hardware company. Yep. Now you might say you're a yep. software enabled company sure. that does hardware, yeah, sure, yeah, we yeah, call yeah. whatever we want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you put physical goods in the world uh-huh. and they gotta work. Yeah, and There's to be like high uptime, yep. you know? yeah, That's surprising to me. That distribution is not what I would have thought it to be.
0: Yep. I think the way you answer that is, you know, if you think about where the hard parts of the invention are, I think that all is sort of on the software side. I think if you think of the hardware that we make, I think of it as a, almost a delivery vehicle for the software or for the end-to-end experience that the customer seeks, right? So, you know, if you think about, you know, I don't know, take our camera or our access control system or, or, or another piece of the equation, I don't think we're, creating necessarily cutting edge hardware the way that Apple has to do when they build the vision pro, right? There's a lot of like crazy complex things that are, uh, you know, that they need to essentially invent on the hardware side to make something like a vision pro or a, a Apple watch work. I think, you know, for us, it's a lot about being smart about what it is that we build, like how we choose the components, who we build it with, but ultimately you know, we're not building the image sensor. We're not building the lens. We're, you know, we're choosing vendors that make these different pieces. We designed the package of how it all functions together and we're very thoughtful about that. Um, And then we do have, you know, sort of a manufacturing operation with JDMs um, that kind of allows us to scalably build these widgets.
1: Yeah, you have a Vision Pro there behind your desk. Yes. So you've played with it? Yes. And as a tinkerer- It's awesome, I love it. You must love it. Are you tired of it yet?
0: I've played with a lot of VR headsets. Uh, have you? Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've played with the early Oculus headsets and, uh, you know, all the meta stuff and, you know, a couple, uh, I think the company's called Varjo yeah. that makes like an enterprise grade one. I love it just because I think ultimately I'm a nerd. I love technology. <laughs> yeah. I love toys. Yeah. I love gadgets. Look, I don't know yet what the, super awesome ultimate use case for these things is one of my co-founders got very into uh, flight simulation. Uh, and so he's got a rig set up with, you know, with a very high end VR headset and it's fantastic. I mean, you sit in the chair and you feel like you're flying a plane and you keep doing it for hours. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a use case that, that definitely resonated with me. I don't know yet, you know, what kind of the killer use case on, on the vision pro is, but I will tell you like I did bring it on the plane. I tried, well, I, I was the crazy guy on the plane. You know, everyone's <laughs> looking at me like, what is this guy doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just watching a movie. We watching a movie? Yeah, yeah. And, and, I could, much, and I could see them.
1: How much better was that experience?
0: You know, it's interesting. I think from the visual fidelity side of things and from the like, audio visual fidelity, I think it was far greater than my default, which is bringing an iPad on the plane. I think the isolation was both fantastic and weird. Mm. Right. So it was fantastic in that, you know, you get into it and you're watching a movie and I turned on, you know, I think they call it like cinema or theater mode. So it like cancels everyone out, like everything out around you, you know, and then you're sitting in your chair, you're watching a movie and then the flight attendant bumps you like, Oh, what happened? Right. And so, so that, you know, that was a little like disconcerting because it really puts you in the zone, but you know, it was, uh, it was a good experience. I mean, I think You know, the technology needs to get smaller and easier to bring places and the price point is probably not accessible, you know, for a lot of people at this point. But it is exciting.
1: Going back to one of the points of like the pressure of the valley. Yeah. Like the pressure of the valley right now is that there's these platform shifts happening. And this is the thing. This is the new thing. And that includes the VR headsets from Apple. Yep. That's like captured the zeitgeist of everybody over uh-huh. the last few weeks. Uh-huh. And that includes AI. Like sure. those are the things. Yep. Do I think you probably have a good story for both of those things? I think you do. Yep. I think you do. Yep. I think that there's a pretty good AI story Absolutely. with what you all are doing and the information, the data that you're capturing and how you can empower customers. I believe that. But do you feel like there's just this undue pressure to now all of a sudden, like go, Talk to your CMO about how Verkata is like an AI company. Yeah, yeah. Or when you're wearing these, when you're wearing these glasses, figuring out like, okay, Philip, what is your story about like uh, how we're gonna integrate into this new platform, this like Apple platform? I don't know. How do you think about it?
0: I mean, I think there is a lot of that in the Valley. I think you're right. Like a lot of people, you know, think that way. I, I think my approach or our approach is. I love the exposure to the new technologies and I think we, you know, we try them and we see, you know, kind of how they make sense. But I think for me, it's much more about what's the long-term value that these things can meaningfully create within the context of, you know, of, of our company and our product and customer base. Right. So, I'm probably not the type of person who just, you know, grabs the keyword because it's the hot keyword and attaches it to my company name and yells it from the top of the mountain. And I'm sure that costs me a little bit on the valuation side. Uh, But, you know, I think on the other hand, I think we are pretty thoughtful and, you know, kind of bullish on some of these technological advancements and how they will kind of over the next years or maybe decades, you know, change the industry. And certainly with, you know, with AI and all the advancement there, I think, Already the first wave of that, which was like the, you know, kind of computer vision and autonomous vehicles wave, that definitely was a great tailwind for Verkata and we've benefited from it greatly and we've built a lot of that into our products. Uh, and I think what you're seeing now, you know, as kind of this new wave of AI. I think there's going to be profound effects in, in terms of like scene understanding and data analysis and all of that stuff that, you know, you'll see in our products in years to come.
1: Yeah. Did you see the the Zuckerberg response to the Apple VR headsets. Did you see his? Did you see him yeah. like put on the Quest? Yep. Just like this, but yeah, like yeah. in his house. Yes. Have them put on their Facebook, the Meta headset. Yep, yep. Yep. And he just does a basically product review. Oh yeah. Of Apple. Yep. What did you think of that?
0: You know, I haven't. I've seen clips of it. I haven't. Dude, you seen should the watch full, it. I will watch the full length thing. I haven't watched it's the full. It's really.
1: There's two things that struck me. Number one, huh. talk about this ability to persist. Yep. This guy. Yep. is still going yep. and is like waging war oh, yeah. against Apple in hardware, he's oh, yeah. not even a hardware guy. Yep. And you know, he had to lay off like 20% of the company. Yep. He went through some really tough times over the last couple of years. They're not necessarily the good guy in the public sphere, oh, yeah. you know? and he just keeps going. So I think there's, I don't know, maybe that was like observation number one. Observation number two, there was something really refreshing, even though he's oddly robotic, there is something really refreshing about just him sitting there, yep. just like giving a breakdown as a CEO of like, how here's- How he thinks about How it. he thinks about yep. it. Here's why I think we win. Here's yep. why I think they lose. Yep. Just like such an earnest dialogue yep. with people about their product. And I think sometimes maybe to be clear, the second observation is I feel like sometimes we overcomplexify like what we're doing, which is like sometimes maybe it's a podcast where a CEO just sits there and talks and gives a feeling about their vision that's visceral to people. So anyway, those are my two kind of like takeaways. I didn't know if you had a reaction to it or not.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think I'm amazed. I mean, I think what both Facebook and Apple are doing on this front is, 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 is crazy. And yeah, I mean, I think- Everything you said is is spot on, right? Which is, if you told me to go build a phone to compete with iPhone, I would, I would tell you you're crazy. Like it's extreme challenge, right? So I admire them for kind of both pushing the fronts of that. I mean, I think ultimately what I think about it is, I, you know, there is a certain level of hardware execution that enables these devices to mm. be what I think, you know, maybe Mark and you know Tim or Apple and Facebook are, you know, respectively envisioning. You know, I'm guessing they've seen a few versions into the future of what's possible and, and what these things can enable. And I would guess that that is what is, you know, kind of driving their, you know, conviction on this front. That Do you think people next, underestimate
1: this? Like, meaning, you know, how hard it is to build V, whatever this is, 1? Yeah, V1
0: for V1 Apple. V1 for yeah, yeah.
1: Apple. But as you put those on, I imagine the engineer in you. Oh,
0: I put it on. And I looked at it for 10 seconds. I took it off. I was like, this is amazing. That's what you thought. I I literally like took it off for a second just to like reflect on how clear and amazing the progress was. I mean, like if you've used, you know, some of these things just five years ago, you know, it would have lag and give you a headache and you'd see pixels. Right. And, you know, you put this thing on and it's super clear and it reads your hands in, in space in front of you and it's super responsive. So, yeah, I think as an engineer, I'm. I'm both blown away by how good it is, and then I'm excited about how, you know, if I press the fast forward button in my head, I'm guessing you know over the next five, seven years, whatever it is the next few versions, it just becomes better, clearer, more compact, more integrated. Uh, and that is exciting.
1: John Dor says that the signature of a great entrepreneur is their ability to articulate a vision of the future. That they can uniquely bend forward into the current. And when I was watching Mark yeah. do th- this thing, yeah. and he was talking about like the Ray-Ban sunglasses and how the phone and the headset are gonna work together, right, right. I was like, this guy is literally oh, yeah. looking into the future right yes, now. Yes, yes. And it was very convincing. Yeah,
0: and I would bet they, you know, they, if, give- you're damned. You probably have mock-ups and betas and crazy oh, yeah. gear, And you probably literally have seen the future, yeah. which I think is the only way to be as excited and as convinced as they both seemingly are about it. Yeah. Um, but by extension, I'm excited. I, I love technology and you know, I, I love when people do something new because it just it gives everyone momentum to keep pushing.
1: Well, look, I can't wait to see what you pull forward from the future. Are you hiring? Always. Uh, are there any key roles? That you want to shout out? Are there any offices? Yeah. like you have six hundred plus jobs to fill. So
0: yeah, I mean, look, we're hiring across all France, all offices. Um, most of our global offices are sales offices, so that's how you can think of you know roles outside of San Mateo. In San Mateo, we're hiring sales, but also engineering, you know, kind of GNA, all other roles for the business. So yeah, growing across all France
1: and. Your sales office is like when we walk the sales floor. There, it, again, it gave me that like old school feel of yeah, like there's like dashboards. Yep, it's happening. Yes. It's buzzing. Someone closes a deal. Like the bells go off. Like yep. it's the whole thing. Yep, it's really cool, man.
0: Well, I, and I think you know it's it's great because it's it's a great environment, frankly, for people to learn. Right. So you know that energy it keeps you going. It keeps you wanting to do more. And I think when you create that environment, you know you just osmotically learn a lot from the people who are sitting next to you and so that I would say is one of the you know kind of best aspects of that particular job within our organization.
1: Yeah. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of?
0: You know, I think of like the need to persevere, the need to like you know, when you're building something for me, it's always this question of like how long do you try and keep trying and at what point are you, you know, kind of crazy and you know, in the middle of the ocean and you should give up and you know, I think there is a big part of the journey up front, which is really tough. And I think, you know, I'm not sure how many people kind of appreciate that, but I think that's what you have to navigate. It's the choppy waters at the beginning. Even now when the company's bigger, um, I actually say this to employees at, at every onboarding we do, you know, the company and the markets and everything, it's cyclical, right? There's good times and there's bad times. And and I guarantee for everyone who joins, if they're going to be here for a few years, for sure, that'll be, there will be a moment where things won't be going as well as they had hoped. Right. And that might be on their end. That might be the company end, that might be the markets, you know, who knows. Uh, and so I always think of like the cycle of like, you know, when things are going well, you charge up energy and you, you know, you think of those things that make you exciting, like, you know, like this positive customer stories or the stuff you love building or whatever it is that you, you love doing and you store that energy so that, you know, when invariably something goes sideways, you have it to dispense and you have a strong team and you can navigate through the storm, you know, and hopefully get back uh, to the clear on the other side.
1: I'm excited for everything that you all are doing. And um, I want to just come here and have a beer with you at some point to your office. For sure, anytime. Yeah, so I, uh, thank you for having me and um, I appreciate you doing this. Awesome, thanks so much. Yeah. That's it, thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than a hundred past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week.